Alrighty, happy Monday. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Pete Callender here, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. I will tell you that the uh, we are uh, monitoring the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, murder trial. He is, uh, we're, we're at the the very end here. The judge, I can bring this up here actually, He is he's giving the final instructions to the jury. And uh, then they will move to their closing arguments. Counts one through five. That's all the counts now. So I'm not going to uh, obviously bore us all with the, the with, with the reading of all of the the law. And they went uh, they removed the jury at one point so they could hash out some language about what the law means and all this other stuff. Uh, there was one development prior to uh, the program here today, which is that he tossed one of the charges. And uh, there is a perfectly reasonable explanation unless you've been lied to by your preferred media sources as to why that occurred. Um, but the closing arguments are what we are interested in hearing just by the because uh, they're an hour behind us just by the uh, the timing of it here that I'm looking at. I'm thinking what's going to happen is he's going to finish reading these um, the jury instructions which were like 30 to 40 pages. It's been a very exciting morning, I know. But he, he's going to finish reading these instructions, and then I suspect he's going to take a break. He's going to break for lunch rather than, uh, you know, have the prosecutors start their close, and then, you know, you never interrupt the closing argument if you can help it, um, unless they're going, like, ridiculously long. So I, I don't think he would have the prosecution start their closing uh, their closing arguments and then pause for lunch so but then again he he may know because i haven't been uh, i haven't been watching to find out if he's discussed any of this with the prosecutors and the defense attorneys as to how long they think they're going to go and i've seen judges do that in the past they'll say you know how long do you think your close will be and then they can kind of work out the timing around that um it could go to the jury today i'm yeah, I don't know. I have no idea how long the, the closing arguments can go, because usually the prosecutors go, then the defense attorneys go, and then the prosecutors get the second bite at the apple, right? So he's still going over, let's see here, rational consideration of the evidence. Most important affairs of life. A reasonable doubt is not a doubt, which is based upon mere guesswork or speculation. A doubt which arises merely from sympathy or from fear to return a verdict of guilt is not a reasonable doubt. A reasonable doubt is not a doubt such as may be used to escape the responsibility of a decision. Examine the evidence and search for the truth, giving the defendant the benefit of every reasonable doubt. Evidence is defined first. I I felt like I needed to pull that up because there are so many people that they believe that the standard is a shadow of a doubt, and that is not the standard. It's reasonable doubt, which is kind of a self-defining term, which I've never liked when they say it's the doubt that a reasonable person might have. Well... (laughs) Okay, well, what's reasonable? All right, so let's get to some of the uh, some of the developments here. So the judge, uh, as you just heard him, uh, he dismissed one of the counts. Let me pull this up here. Hang on one second. All right, um, the count was possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under the age of eighteen, and you know as well as I do, this has been. Uh, one of the big talking points that he was under the age of 18. He crossed state lines with a gun to kill people. Okay, like, first off, uh, simply being in possession of the firearm 
in Wisconsin law, under the age of 18, not necessarily illegal. And you would not have known that if you consume only corporate mainstream media uh, fare. So that's the first part. The other part was that he did not actually cross state lines with the gun. The gun stayed in Wisconsin with his friend. He, he kept it at his friend's house because he had a gun safe, and so he left it there. So when he went back to Kenosha, which, by the way, one of the other things that people keep making a big deal about is that, well, he's not from Kenosha. He lives in this other town called Antioch. Yeah, Antioch is like 30 miles across the border. It's th- their border cities. Think like Rock Hill and Charlotte, right? So this idea that he traveled all this way, it's not that big of a deal, and he's actually got family that lives there. His dad lives in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He's got, I think, an aunt up there as well. So he spends a lot of time in both cities, about half and half. And so this idea that he was just like uh, showing up into some random city in order to shoot rioters and looters, it, it, it has never been the case. So the judge uh, threw out this misdemeanor charge of uh, possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18, um, and that appeared to be among the most likely charges that the prosecutors could have actually gotten a conviction on. The judge uh, explained that, because uh, he's in going through the charging instructions, or the, the jury instructions, rather, he talks about the laws of self-defense, and after that, the two sides are then going to do their closing arguments. The underage weapon charge was punishable by up to nine months in jail. There's no dispute that he was 17 years old when he was uh, you know, at the protest, but the defense attorney said that Wisconsin law had an exception that can be read to clear Kyle Rittenhouse. Prosecutors conceded that his rifle was not a short-barreled rifle, and that's the key. Not being a short-barreled rifle, he now falls within the exemption. Let me bounce over here to a fellow named Will Chamberlain. He cites the actual statute that says any person under 18 years of age who goes armed with a dangerous weapon is guilty of a misdemeanor. But there are a number of exceptions, including one for minors who are carrying a rifle or a shotgun. And to have violated the statute, he would have had to... Uh, either be running around with a sawed-off shotgun, which was not the case, um, or it only imposes restrictions on the possession of firearms by minors under the age of 16. It says nothing about 17. And so therein lies the exemptions that applied in his case, and so the judge threw out the charge. All right, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The uh, judge has finished with his jury instructions, and uh, the pro- and they're moving into closing arguments. And so, uh, we will start here with the prosecutor Binger, Thomas Binger, I believe is his name. He is first to the podium. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I want to assure you that everything that the judge just read to you, you'll get a copy of, so you'll have a chance to uh, look it over yourself. You don't have to memorize everything he just told you. I think it's no surprise that this is a case that there's a lot of uh, noise and a lot of uh, static surrounding it. So what I'd like to do at the beginning is crystallize it in a nutshell for you and keep it as simple as possible. This is a case in which a 17-year-old teenager killed two unarmed men 
and severely wounded a third person with an AR-15 that did not belong to him. This isn't a situation where he was protecting his home or his family. He killed people after traveling here from Antioch, Illinois, and staying out after a citywide curfew. Your Honor, I don't object. Uh-oh. Objection. No curfew charge anymore. There's no gun charge. Although he claimed... Yeah, there's no charge, but... Um, and, and, and there... There has been some discussion about the lawfulness of the curfew. Not in this case, but elsewhere. Uh, so it's... Uh, there, but there was, had been a curfew announced. Uh, that does not mean that um, it was technically lawfully a, a legal curfew. But there had been an announced curfew, so I'll leave it at that. And it was a curfew that all the rest of us here in Kenosha were aware of. Well, except the rioters. Most, people, most reasonable people obeyed. And the looters, they didn't obey Although it. the defendant claimed to be protecting a business that he wasn't familiar with, the actual killings in this case had nothing to do with that. And he also spent the entire evening lying about the fact that he was an EMT. None of the things that I just told you are in doubt in this case. So when we think about the defendant, I'd like you to consider as you think about this case what were his true motivations were. Was this a situation where he sincerely cared about car source, even though he'd never heard of it, never bought anything there, never worked there, and not even its owners were out there that night protecting That's him? the car lot. Was he genuinely interested in helping people? He ran around with an AR-15 all night and lied about being an EMT. Does that suggest to you that he genuinely is there to help? He's not there for the same purpose as the protesters. So why was he there? Oh, I guess they were, they were allowed to do what they did. Oh, that's a good thing. Oh. When you think about these things, I think there are some things that we can all agree on. In America, it's hard these days. People are polarized, and there's a lot of political issues back and forth. And the judges made it clear this case is not about politics. There is common ground here. We have all agreed, and I asked you this two weeks ago today. Raise your hand if you agree life is more important than property. And all of you raised your hand. We also agree that no one person's life is more valuable than another. You don't get to kill someone simply because they're a drug dealer. You don't weigh a, a pastor's life over a teacher's life. You don't weigh a police officer's life over an engineer's life. All life is sacred. I think we can also agree that we shouldn't have 17-year-olds running around our streets with AR-15s, because this is exactly what happens. And finally, I want you to keep in mind that we've all read stories and heard about heroes that step in to stop an active shooter or to give their life to save others. In fact, many people in Wisconsin went out and got carrying concealed weapon permits just so that they could be there in case there was an active shooter and wanting to stop them. So when you consider this case, look for the truth. So many people look at this case and they see what they want to see. They have a preconceived notion and they tailor the facts to fit whatever they believe. And you all agreed to keep an open mind. You all told us you didn't have any of those preconceived notions. Now you've heard the evidence and it's time to search for the truth. So consider, for example, whether or not it's heroic or honorable to provoke and shoot unarmed people. Consider whether it makes someone a hero when they lie about being an EMT. 
I think all of us are familiar with someone who does the sorts of things that the defendant has done. They enjoy the thrill of going around and telling people what to do without the courage or the honor to back it up and without the legal authority to do so. And when you think about the defendant's behavior in this case, contrast it with Anthony Huber, a man who was there because he knew Jacob Blake, who carried his skateboard everywhere and who rushed towards danger to save other people's lives. So when I talk to you here in my closing argument, I'm going to focus first on the murders that the defendant committed. Second, I'm going to address some background issues, give you some context, and talk about some of the things that I don't think are relevant to this case. And finally, I'm going to tie it all into the jury instructions that the judge just gave you. As prosecutors in this case, my colleague Jim Krause and I have tried to present you with all of the relevant evidence that we think you should consider in this case. And I told one of you in jury selection that at the end of this, you would be the expert. You would have all the information. You would be the one who would know all about this case and make that decision. And that's what we've tried to do. So let's go to August 25th, 2020. The defendant came from outside our community <laughs> carrying a gun that wasn't his mm -hmm. because he expected and anticipated violence that night. All right. Yeah. All right. Let, let, let me stop it right there because they're getting he's getting ready to kind of rack his whole argument. Um, so there but there is the argument that you've heard the media repeating, which is he's not from here. And I just went over his family lives there. He spends a great deal of time there. He said he splits about half of his time in Antioch versus Kenosha. Uh, he was working as a lifeguard in Kenosha. The gun that was purchased for him by his friend Dominic, I think was his name. Uh, and I said during that testimony, I was like, I think Dominic's going to be in some trouble. Yeah. But the fact that it wasn't his gun, I'm, I'm not so sure why that matters. Except for charging Dominic. <laughs> right? But yes, he, he expected and anticipated violence. You know why? Because that's what the city officials in Kenosha had allowed to occur for multiple days straight. All right, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Uh, watching the closing arguments in the Kyle Rittenhouse murder trial here. Um, also aware that YouTube is now taking down the video feeds on various uh, YouTube channels and websites, which is kind of weird to me because this is all one pool feed. So why would, why would you get to take down the feeds? That doesn't make sense, but uh, I'll check into that. All right, we resume. So the prosecution says the defendant came from outside the community carrying a gun that wasn't his. Because he expected and anticipated violence, as there was for multiple days, and pretended to guard an empty building owned by a business he never heard of. It doesn't matter. While fraudulently claiming to be an EMT. So this is the case. Oh, and by the way, it seems like they're actually trying to cast Anthony Huber, the guy who attacked Rittenhouse twice with the skateboard. They're trying to say he was the real hero, not Rittenhouse, which... Anybody who's ever taken a concealed carry class probably heard some form of the story that you don't get to shoot and kill people. You don't get to attack people when you think that 
uh, they're in the wrong automatically. The story that I heard, for example, is a guy sitting in his car in front of a Walmart, true story, and two people come tumbling out of the front door, and they're fighting, and one of them uh, gets on top of the other and draws a gun on the guy on the ground. The guy sitting in the truck watching all of this unfold jumps out of his truck and shoots the guy with the gun, who turned out to be an off-duty police officer trying to make an arrest for shoplifting. The guy in the truck, the concealed carry holder, guilty. Because he did not see what started the fight. He did not see what had initially happened. And so Anthony Huber chasing Kyle Rittenhouse down a street in the middle of a mob and whacking him on two separate occasions with a skateboard is not justifiable. And if you are going to attack a guy with a gun who's running away from you, then that is self-defensible action on the part of the guy with the gun. He's running away from you. He's not a threat to you. And you chase after him and you attack him twice. But this is the argument the prosecutors are laying out, apparently. He pretended to guard what turned out to be an empty building owned by people he'd never even met while fraudulently claiming all night long to be an EMT. There were a lot of people out that night. Some people stayed home protecting their homes and their families. Others went to their businesses, boarded them up, and protected them. Why? And a lot of those people had weapons. A lot of them had guns. There were other people who came along to protect car source or ultimate gas or other businesses. And many of them were armed with AR-15s, just like the defendant. In fact, you're going to see a video, and you've already seen it, of a clash between people with AR-15s at ultimate gas and other folks that are, I guess, protesters. And yes. there's people getting in people's faces. Mm-hmm. There's yelling. There's shouting. There's even shoving. Mm. And yet, in this entire sequence of events, from the shooting of Jacob Blake on Sunday, August 23rd, 2020, all the way after that, everything this community went through, the only person who shot and killed anyone was the defendant. Yes, there was property damage. No one's here to defend that. No one's here to tell you it's okay to commit arson or looting. No one's here to tell you it's okay to be rioters. I'm not defending any of that. You know, because you've been told in the testimony, I'm prosecuting Joseph Zeminski for arson. That's not okay. But what you don't get to do is kill someone on the street for committing arson. That's not why. So let's keep that in mind. Nobody shot anyone when for we're talking about arson. the people involved in this case. That's just a dishonest lie. So let's begin with the provocation and the murder of Joseph Rosenbaum because it's all captured on video. All right, this is the. As the defendant and Mr. Rosenbaum arrive at the 63rd Street car source, Mr. Rosenbaum is ahead of the defendant. And as you see in the FBI video, when Mr. Rosenbaum starts to run, the defendant starts to run as well, at the same time, as if he's pursuing him. Mr. Rosenbaum could not have possibly have known the defendant is behind him. There's no indication in this record that he knew the defendant was there. It's not an ambush. It's not a situation where he goes there and lays in wait for the defendant. The defendant arrives at that location and you hear him yell, friendly, 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 because he's aware of the fact that the people that he's about to confront are hostile to him. And I'm gonna show you in a moment 
the video in which the first thing he does when he arrives at that location is drops the fire extinguisher that he's holding in his left hand so he can raise the gun with his right and left hands and point it. This is when you hear someone... By the way, this was the subject of a lot of debate about the drone video because the prosecutors had used uh, some enhancing technology to make it look clear. the defendant from pointing his gun or shooting anyone. So let's take a look at some of that video. And we have a technical issue. <laughs> this is always the way... With this, the way this trial has been going, it's been... This is Exhibit 73, yeah. the full Frustrating. video. And as we've pointed out to you before, and Jim will point out to you here in a second on the screen, when the defendant originally arrives at that scene, the first thing you see him do is drop the fire extinguisher and point his weapon at people. And then the chase occurs right after that. And you're going to see that entire sequence of events here on the full drone video. Which apparently came from the FBI, which then raises a lot of other questions like, well, how many drones have the feds been flying around Black Lives Matter protests over the uh, in that last summer? Like, also, the guy, Zeminski, he was the one who squeezed off a few rounds right before Rittenhouse was attacked by Rosenbaum. He slows and turns, and before Mr. Rosenbaum can even come close... He fires at him, shooting and knocking him to the ground. So they keep showing the video. They're going to repeat it on a loop, I think, for like five or six times. And this was also up for debate. Like, do you get to a point where you watch it too many times, you become desensitized to it? So if so, how many times is that? When he first uh, gets there. And Mr. Krause is going to help me by directing your attention on the larger screen here to exactly where you will see the defendant. It is, like, really far away. This video is really far away. And he's playing it. You're, like, probably a block and a half down the road. This drone is a block and a half down the road. I'm going to replay it a few times so you can see quite clearly that the defendant sets the fire extinguisher on the ground with his left hand and then brings his left hand over to the gun and raises it and points. Which, by the way, is probably due to the fact that it was a, a single hinge uh, uh, sling. That the that it was just one connection. It wasn't a double connection um, on the sling that holds the gun around your neck and shoulder. You know, if you had had multiple points, then the gun would probably be able to stay in one place. But it was a single point connecting at you know one loop and. It slides around a lot. And they talked about that at uh, Rittenhouse's uh, testimony, during his testimony. Closing arguments underway in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Prosecutor or assistant DA, I should say, Thomas Binger, making his arguments. Uh, He started about uh, a little less than an hour ago. Uh, They are now getting to a point where he's uh, uh, laying out the argument for provocation. Uh, Andrew Branca over at uh, LegalInsurrection.com. He says, we can consider the implications of the state's ambush-style provocation gambit based on this 11th-hour reveal of drone footage 
that got left on the prosecution's doorstep by the evidence fairy and uh, has the potential to make all the self-defense arguments irrelevant. Uh, this is this is their argument. So, well, take a listen. Oh, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I pulled the plug on that. Yeah, I'm going back and forth here. All right, so here we go. This is the uh, this is the assistant DA Thomas Binger. Under Wisconsin law, you're not allowed to run around and point your gun at people. This is the provocation, right? That's this is what starts this incident, which is, of course, not true. Just by the way, let me stop again. This is not true. This is this is not what started the incident. Okay, pointing the gun did not start the incident. There's been days of looting and rioting, and somebody shot a gun three seconds prior to Rosenbaum chasing down Rittenhouse. There are uh, gun residue burns on uh, on uh, Rosenbaum's hands. The video clearly shows him lunging. There are eyewitnesses that say he was uh, lunging after Rittenhouse. So all of the evidence points to self-defense, but this is what the state is trying to argue that Rittenhouse provoked the attack by pointing the gun after he put down the fire extinguisher and stood up. He then grabbed the gun because it was pointed down. It was uh, flopping around on the sling. That's their provocation argument. The defendant rushes in and immediately points the gun. And as you'll see in a little bit, Mr. Rosenbaum doesn't take kindly to people pointing guns. I don't think anyone does. That's not unusual. Yeah, but all right. All right okay. But Rosenbaum is not just anyone. He is a guy who literally was released from the psychiatric hospital hours prior, right? Guy's been, I mean, run-ins with the law, served a stint for pedophilia. Like, this was not a regular guy out there like, oh, I'm just out here, you know, for justice. The guy was yelling and barking in people's faces at the gas station, he was an aggressor the entire evening. But the prosecution is trying to paint him as, you know, just some guy out there. And, oh, my goodness, he felt like Rittenhouse pointed a gun. So I'm going to go chase down the guy with the big, bad assault ref, uh, weapon. I'm going to go chase him down. And that was the provocation. This is their argument. No one wants to have the gun pointed at them. And no one wants to watch anyone else do this to someone else. We have the gun. It is in evidence as exhibit number 28. I'm having the detectives check it to make sure that it is safe. The defendant comes running in and drops the fire extinguisher on the ground like this. And then raises his left hand to the gun and points. This is what we see in the video. Him putting the fire extinguisher on the ground and then raising the gun. Your Honor, I'm going to check he's facing the wrong direction. That's an argument. Okay. He's facing the wrong direction. I actually have, well, I'll leave it alone. So what you see in that video is his left arm reaching for the gun, holding it up. I believe this is where the cussing happens. No? Okay. You can see it again on the video here. We're trying to monitor for... His left arm reaching up towards the gun. Potential FCC violations. (laughs) 
That is what provokes this entire incident. And one of the things to keep in mind is that when the defendant provokes the incident, he loses the right to self-defense. You cannot claim self-defense against a danger you create. That is true. That's critical right here. If you're the one who is threatening others, you lose the right to claim self-defense. So that's what the jury now is going to have to determine as to whether or not Rittenhouse, this little tiny uh, video, it's like less than a second, that sh- like two blocks away, whether that is the provocation necessary in order to convict him because he provoked. They just need to give him a reason. That's what it sounds like. That's the DA. If this is what all of this now amounts to, all of the two weeks trial, all of the last year and a half, if this is what it comes down to, this is very, very weak. Indeed. Um, And now he's so they're showing the video of Rittenhouse running across the parking lot. He's being pursued by Rosenbaum. Rittenhouse turns. Rosenbaum is on him. Rosenbaum goes to grab the gun. And I guess what the DA is now saying is, oh, he was trying to put his hands up. (laughs) He was trying to put his hands up. That's the idea here. Uh, I'll play it again. Here's Mr. Rosenbaum. Let me see. Uh, He raises his arms off to the side of the defendant, approaches these. I'm just reading the closed caption because I'm afraid to play this audio because there's going to be cussing. Uh, Then turns and shoots. And by the way, this is all slowed down by 50%. Because otherwise, it happens so fast, you wouldn't even be able to see what is occurring. This shows you the final part of that, zoomed in and slowed down. Here's the defendant running in between those parked cars, slowing down, and you can see just how close, or rather how far away, Mr. Rosenbaum was when the defendant shot him. You can see from this video that Mr. Rosenbaum is not even within arm's reach of the defendant when the first shot goes off. The defendant fires four shots in quick succession. And I'll come back to this in a moment, but you'll note... That is is what you're trained to do. You, you You shoot until the threat is stopped. He's the one who decides to run where he runs. And he slows down right as he gets to these parked cars. Yeah, because he didn't know. That's what allows Rosenbaum to get closer. Right. Because he, yeah, he didn't know Rosenbaum was chasing him until he gets to the cars. Aerial footage from the FBI. And I want you to see that perspective as well. This was the FBI drone footage that just miraculously appears while the trial is. This is Exhibit 25. This is the annotated aerial footage. You see the defendant approach running in the same direction as Mr. Rosenbaum. This is where the pointing occurs in the direction of the Zeminskis. You can see Joshua Zeminski's right there on the screen. I'm gonna put the cursor over where, where the Zeminskis are. They're right in there. They're all right next to each other. That's the point here. They're all right next to each other. The Zeminskis, uh, uh, husband and wife, husband's got a gun. He fires off a bunch of rounds. That then causes the mayhem. I would submit that's probably the provocation. Or it could be all the rioting and looting. 
just spitballing here. News is next.